If I haven't met you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's great to be in worship with you. We're finishing a sermon series today called Don't Move the Lampstand. And uh, before we, we go there, I was actually watching a really interesting TV show uh, recently. I can't remember if it was Planet Earth, but some kind of nature show. And it was about snow monkeys who hang out in hot springs. They, they observed that these Japanese... Uh, Tourists in the mountains of Japan would, would spend time in hot springs, and monkey see, monkey do. All of a sudden, the monkeys are like, hey, we, we're just outside all the time. Why don't we get in the hot spring? And so now there's a whole troop of monkeys that spend most of their, their days lounging in mountain hot springs, and that's kind of their existence. And tourists now, instead of going and sitting in the hot springs, just watch the monkeys sit in the hot tub. <laughs> it, was really, it was really an engaging show. What was troubling about it, though, is you had to be in the right class to use the hot springs in the monkey social pecking order. In other words, there was a majority of people who were just, not people, monkeys that were cold, and they were just looking at the other monkeys in the hot tub, wishing they could join them. There was room there, but they weren't welcome. And something really just rose up in me, like, you selfish monkeys. I can't believe that. Like, let them in the hot tub. I was really getting mad at the TV as they just kept panning in on all these cold monkeys. Why is it that when we see people who won't share their resources with others, even though they have resources to share, we all kind of think, oh, there's something wrong with that. And on the other side, when we see generous monkeys or people sharing, it's attractive. It, that's kind of what we're talking about today. We're finishing uh, a deep dive on Acts chapter 2, uh, specifically this description of the ancient church, the early church. And one of the peculiar things that they did was they shared everything in common. And, th and this is interesting for us, given our current political climate. Did you know that a survey came out recently and people under 30 years old in America were polled on whether or not they would vote for a socialist candidate for president, someone who, who really thinks socialism is the way forward. And 69% of those under 30 said they would. They, they view socialism as favorable. And that's a big, deep divide because a lot of the other generation cohorts in America think that's, that's crazy, think that that wouldn't work. And, and there's people even in the same household that that wonder about that. And a lot of people who advocate socialism look to a scripture like Acts chapter 2. So it's fitting that in this context, we just, we just do a deep dive and look at that. We've been talking about not moving the lampstand. And if you're new, the series actually starts in Exodus chapter 25 in the Old Testament. And we look at the tent of meeting. Essentially, Moses was given instructions from God to establish a portable worship facility called the tent of meeting. And there was a bunch of symbolic furniture that were to be constructed and put in there. And they had meaning. And among the Ark of the Covenant, that's the thing that melts the Nazi's face in, in um, what is that movie? Raiders. Ra Raiders, Raiders of the Last Ark. Yeah. Wow. We got a lot of people were on the ball with that one. Um, Anyways, the Ark of the Covenant, that's important, but what, what uh, gets lost sometimes is this acacia table and this lamp that Moses was supposed to construct. The Hebrew word for lamp is um, basically indicating a seven, 
tiered lamp, a menorah, and it was to be pointed on the bread of the presence in the table. And there was actually wine of the presence. And these had meaning. In other words, God was training his people that he was always going to provide for them. He was always with them. And he didn't just love them, he liked them because you, you have to like somebody to actually share a meal with them on a consistent basis. And God says that to you and me this morning. But then in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we are actually told that this lamp had a symbolic meaning, just like the bread is the presence of God and the wine is the presence of God's provision and the promise of the party that is to come eternally. The lamp actually represents the church, you see. And, and in Revelation, we, we read that, you know, Jesus tells the church, you're doing good, but you've kind of walked away from your first love, me. And if you don't have a renewed relationship with me, I'm going to turn the lamp off. In other words, we are told that we are, as the church, whether we're a big church or a little church, regardless of your denominational background, if you're a follower of Jesus, doing life with other followers of Jesus, the purpose of the church is to shine the light on who Jesus is. That's why we exist. We don't exist to maintain a budget, to maintain a building, to get butts in the seat, to create a buzz. Those are the four Bs, right? Budget, building, butts in the seat, a buzz. Those are important. We're glad that we're consistently showing up. We do need a budget, and, and we're a generous church. We just had a board meeting. We're doing really, really well financially. That's great. The building looks better than it ever has. There's a buzz about Mercy Road. That's great. More important than all those things, the primary purpose of the church is to shine the light on who Jesus is. And, and did you know that's your purpose as an individual? And you thought you were an accountant. You thought you were a stay-at-home parent. You thought you were a police officer. And you, well, yeah, all that matters. But your primary purpose in life is to illuminate Jesus by having a deep relationship with him. And, and how that plays out behaviorally shows up in the book of Acts. And so we're going to just start by looking at this curious piece of scripture, if we can get that on the screen. All the believers were together. And they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together. Some of you guys have a hard time showing up, you know, two or three Sundays a month. They said every day. That's impressive. They're doing life together. And they met in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a snapshot of an early movement. And for centuries, Christians have looked at it and said, what are we to learn from this? And we've looked at different behaviors and we've talked as we end this series and we remind our own hearts not to move the lampstand, not to focus the, the life of the church and the life of the believer on something other than its purpose. Let's, let's just dissect what in the world is going on that they had everything in common. Does that mean we need to move into a commune and sell all of our stuff? These are legitimate questions. So if you're taking notes, the first one, the first thing I'd, I'd like us to notice is nobody was forced and everybody was united. Nobody was forced to sell property or homes. Did you notice that anywhere in the text? In the context, it's not there. And everyone was united. That's one, one 
distinction, I suppose you could say, from political discussions on the benefits of capitalism or socialism. And, and by the way, just know that if you're new here, we have people on both sides of the aisle here. And I think if we're keeping the light on Jesus, we're not going to let politics divide us, and we're going to be united. And that's very countercultural in a world that is very divided on every political conversation. So, so they were not being forced, and yet it appears that all the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed. So what, what we have going on here apparently is individual generosity. They were doing life together, and it was like some people noticed that other people couldn't come on the journey. After all, the context is Peter preached a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus and said, this is the guy. And, and there's Jews from all over, all parts of the ancient world, in town for a festival, and he's sharing the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus, the very Son of God, the very God in the flesh, showed up, lived the life that we can't live as hard as we try, died the death that a collective human sin problem caused, and rose to life, and we're to follow him and become disciples. And 3,000 people responded to this message. They said, what do, what do we do? We're persuaded that your, your claim is true. And he said, be baptized and start doing life together. But in the ancient world, you see, doing life together, especially the way that they're doing it, is expensive. There is likely a whole spectrum of socioeconomic realities in the group of 3,000 people who responded to the apostles' preaching. Some of them were, like most people did in the ancient world, looking for their next meal every moment of their life. They were wondering if they would have enough food to feed their kids. And so how could they start doing life together in this Jesus community? Because they, they could barely scrape by. Now, the apostles could have preached the message and said, everyone who's reasonably doing well financially and has enough margin and went through Financial Peace University and you know did the debt snowball and got out of debt and has, has good savings, and, and, you know, has an extra house. If that's you, you are invited to do life together and follow Jesus. But they didn't say that. They just said anyone, everyone who wants to respond to this message can come on the journey. But, but journeys cost money. I was at the Ninja Conquer gym yesterday. Anyone do that before? First of all, total side note, I'm in more pain right now then I can never remember while preaching a sermon. So you can pray for that. <laughs> and I got baited into trying to run up the 14-foot wall and do the rings and stuff because I took my boys and there's this younger instructor guy kind of showing off in front of them. And the boys are like, you can do that too, right, Dad? And I was like, I don't think I can. And that, but they wear you down. And I, I'm at that age where they, they, they're at the age where they think I'm just super impressive. Like they, they watch the Marvel movies and assume like, eh, Thor might be a little stronger than dad, but dad, they're close, you know. And so I'm trying to keep that going and now I can barely walk. <laughs> On the way home, they were asking, could we bring a friend next time to that? And I was thinking to myself, well, it's like 18 bucks a head for one hour. That's kind of a pricey thing. But yeah, you could bring a friend. And then my mind goes to, I wonder what friend they have that would just get a thrill out of that 
that is growing up in a home where that would just never be an option because mom or dad would never have the expendable income to do that. And I think if you're following Christ, the Holy Spirit will constantly prompt you to do things. Why do I share all that? Because Conquer Ninja Gym is not the equivalent to doing life together in the ancient world following Jesus, but we are meant to connect the dots and say, if we're a community of believers and we're going to grow together and have experiences together and do life together, and we really want to say everyone's welcome and nobody's perfect and Jesus is the center, somebody with extra is going to have to pay for someone who couldn't afford the spiritual equivalent of ninja, conquer, Jim. And it seems like that's what was happening in the ancient church. And that's what happens in this church all the time. I see your generosity to each other. But this is to suggest that the model right off the bat is essentially nobody's forced, everyone's united, and people are just seeing needs and meeting needs. It's kind of like if you go on a vacation with, with your whole extended family and there's always one sibling who grew up and is struggling financially and like there's just no way that he or she is going to make that trip unless some of the other siblings pay for that sibling or mom and dad pays for that. That's just how it works. In other words, they were such a family that this was normal and the ancient world saw that as very attractive. Secondly, if you're taking notes, what's interesting about this curious thing of of sharing everything is many gave sacrificially so everyone could follow Jesus together. Now, the misconception here is that they were just kind of all homeless. They just renounced all personal property. But, but if you look at the text, it does say they meet in homes. So somebody's owning a home, but they're also selling homes. What's happening is somebody and a lot of bodies are giving extra. If they owned extra property, they gave that so that more people could come to the, the journey, come on the vacation. And that worked for a while, but do you notice that other people's money will run out eventually? <laughs> right? Do you notice that you can't keep selling your extra property as like a methodology to keep a movement alive because eventually you won't have extra property to sell? What's happening is the movement is growing and the model keeps evolving. Another way to think about this is if you're really a healthy family, you're going to figure out a way to finance what matters most. You're going to, it's going to be there, right? And we've all gone through this as a family. It's like, I don't know how we could afford that, but, but this just needs to happen. So we're going to have to put it in the budget. We're going to have to save and we're going to have to sacrifice. And yet as the family truly gets bigger, you got to get more creative and you got to get more sacrificial. My friend Brian Martin used to be on staff with him at Faith Covenant Church. He was a children and family pastor. He's just so inspirational to me personally. In an age where there are some pastors who like to buy private planes and fly around and collect toys and extra homes and all that, and they're very showy. You have this guy named Brian Martin who's just raising three kids faithfully, and they only have one car for years because he wanted to care about the environment, but also he just, we don't need two cars. And so they gave their second car away because that was extra for them. And, you know, they're already living this shared life 
pretty radically. And then the Lord puts it on their heart to adopt. And they look into adoption, and, and they felt like they needed to ask the adoption agency, who, who's the kids that nobody's going to adopt? And they said, well, we have a brother and sister pair. She's 16, and he's two, and she's completely deaf. She's never been taught sign language, so she has never known how to communicate. She's probably been abused growing up. And this little boy and her are inseparable, but no one will adopt them because how, how in the world would you do that? You'd have to learn sign language. You'd have to teach her then sign language. It would be so sacrificial to do something like that. And they said without flinching, that's who we want. And they're raising five kids in Rochester on a pastor's salary. And they're just making it happen quietly and faithfully. Guess what? That's attractive. Just as unattractive as a bunch of monkeys in a hot tub leaving the monkeys out, that's equal and opposite attractive. That's like, I just want to be around Brian. Is he perfect? No. Is Jesus being illuminated through his generous sacrifice daily of investing in people who might be hard to love? Yes. He and his wife said, this is a priority for us. And so when families that are healthy find a priority, they're going to say, we're going to find a way to afford this. And they did. Thirdly, it's interesting to note in Acts 4, 32 through 35, if you fast forward from Acts 2, the mission and the motives don't change, but the method of sharing does change. So the movement grew, and let's just, let me read this. It's on your notes, too. The community of believers was in, was one in heart and mind. They were united. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There were no needy persons among them. Imagine that. Those who owned property or houses would sell them, bringing the proceeds from the sales and place them at the care and authority of the apostles, placing them at the apostles' feet. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. So Acts 4, you see a shift. As the movement grows, it's not just relying on individuals like Brian and Ann to see a need and meet a need. That's still happening, but now it's evolved into everyone with extra voluntarily, not being forced, just saying, if, if I don't need this, just like Jesus said, if you have two tunics, sell one and, or give one to somebody who has no tunics, they're doing that. They're living out the command of Jesus, but they have developed such a trust in the apostles, the leadership, that they say, hey, you might have a better view and you might be aware of people who really have need that I, I just can't see. And so I'm just gonna trust that you together, guided by the Holy Spirit, are going to distribute that. Now, a lot of secular socialism will point to this and Marxism and, and say, hey, this is how it's supposed to be. And in a sense, we all sense, yeah, it is supposed to be like that. People with extra should give. But what's so different about secular socialism here is there is unity and there's voluntary generosity 
and there's love. It's not just a forced system of taxation. It's inspired generosity. It's a group of people that are being transformed by Jesus to such an extent that they just have all come to conclude people matter infinitely more than things, and things actually get in the way sometimes. So if I ever have a thing that I own that is starting to own me, it's got to go. And then I get to meet a need. And if I don't know what need to see, I can lay it at the the feet of the apostles and it will be distributed. The model shifted. Do you have anything? Personal property question. And I'm not against personal property, but do you own anything that's starting to own you? One way to think about that is if somebody asked to, to borrow it, to use it, to drive it, to wear it, you would be like, oh, that hurts. I don't think, I mean, I like my spouse, but she can't use it. Or I like my friend, he can't drive that. Now, there's some exceptions. Please keep your tooth, toothbrush and your underwear to yourself. You know, I mean, we don't need to share certain things. But if you have something that you really, deep down, you just could never bear to let anybody use it, let alone think about parting with it, that thing might be owning you. And maybe God is going to put a need in your life, someone who is in need, just at the right time to free you from being owned by a personal piece of property. Just a thought. The mission and the motives don't change. Only the method. Mercy Road, we're going to change constantly the way we do certain things. And some years will look different than others. Outreach programs will evolve and shift. And the way ministry is done will change. Not only can it change, it will change because it has to But what can never change is a deep, clear commitment to the mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to to light Jesus up, the bread of the presence, the bread of life, to remind ourselves constantly that God came for us. He rose again. He's coming back for us, and he walks with us. What can never change is the commitment to the great commission to make disciples and the great commandment to love God with everything we've got and love each other like we would love ourselves. And when that mission and that motivation never shifts, it's all about Jesus, Jesus is central, we're not going to mind as much when the model has to shift because models shift all the time. What if six times the amount of people started to come here regularly? Do you know what part of the model would have to shift? (laughs) We better have a few more services or a different building or something. And if we held too tightly onto that model, we would all develop a healthy sense of claustrophobia, right? Some of us grew up in churches where we were turned off because it seemed like people were just fighting all the time about changes. Or they were holding so tightly to things that can't change when everyone, if they're being honest, would admit that that thing that needed to change was no longer serving the mission of lighting up Jesus. It had just become something we do. Not necessarily good or bad, just part of a model. Fourthly, if you're taking notes, this whole business of sharing, 
without a few ingredients, sharing resources, regardless of the model, it's doomed to fail. Without word, without prayer, without unity and wisdom, sharing resources fail. This is a fascinating little section. It's coming from Acts 6 as the story progresses, and scholars are actually divided about how to interpret it. I, I just nerded out about this this week. It was really fun for me. While the number of disciples continued to increase, a complaint arose. Oh, imagine that, a complaint. Greek-speaking disciples accused the Aramaic-speaking disciples because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food service. In the ancient world, widows were extremely vulnerable, and they just needed to be cared for financially. And they had now developed a full-on food distribution program. It went from an individual active, seeing a need, meeting a need, and it it evolved all the way into a, a full distribution system, and the system wasn't working. The 12 apostles, they called a meeting of all the disciples and said, it isn't right for us to set aside proclamation of God's word in order to serve tables. Brothers and sisters, carefully choose seven well-respected men from among you. They must be well-respected and empowered by the Holy Spirit with exceptional wisdom we will put them in charge of this concern. As for us, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the service of proclaiming the word. So what's happening is one vulnerable group is being favored or overlooked, and the other vulnerable group is, is not being overlooked. And there, it looks like a little bit of tinge of racism or tribalism, you know, because we've got the Greek speaking and the Aramaic speaking. Here's what's kind of interesting. This is where they choose Stephen, who's a total stud, by the way. If you keep reading the story, read through all of Acts. It's amazing. And Stephen is chosen with six other men. And if you look at their names in Scripture, they're all Greek names, not Hebrew names. That's significant. So scholars are saying, what's with that? Is that like a statement from the apostles that, you know, the Greek-speaking Jews, they can have a leadership position, but we're going to put them kind of at a mid-level because, you know, they're not kind of the Jerusalem apostles. And this is the point in the story where the apostles stop becoming prominent and a new guy, a Greek Jew named Paul, kind of steals the show. God brings Paul into the mix. And then he gives this Greek-speaking Jew the mission to include not just the diverse ethnicities within the Jewish community in the Jesus invitation, but he said, now go to all places. Go big. Go include the Gentiles. All those people you judge and think are crazy because they are kind of crazy. Yeah, the message is for them too. So this is where the wheels, in a sense, start to fall off because unity is being fractured. But it also just shows us that if we expect to live together in a generous spirit and meet needs of each other, we have to fight for unity and word and prayer. Because in a sense, the apostles are right. They were tasked with proclaiming the word and, and praying diligently with and for people. And if they're having to figure out Excel spreadsheets of where, which widows have gotten which amount of food and is racism entering into it and all of that, that is going to take time away from their ability to proclaim the word and prayer. So they're not fully wrong. 
I do a lot of work around here because we, we have a small staff. I've painted a lot of walls and helped build things with you volunteers. And, and that's appropriate in a sense. And if I do that all the time, the sermons aren't going to be very insightful. If I just mail it in and get up and I, I don't know, I'll, I can't tell you anything about the word. I wasn't in the word. I'll just tell you about the paint colors that we added to the cafe. That would be wrong. But I think what we're also seeing is Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, not airbrushing the dysfunction in the church. He's saying, essentially, as he writes Acts, yeah, this is how it happened. The apostles at one point said, waiting tables is beneath me. And you guys from that tribe, you got to be wise, you got to be godly and all that, but you do it. Now, the irony is, he's kind of saying to Stephen, who's, who's the, the leader of now the food distribution ministry, that you're capable of doing the food distribution, but probably not preaching. What happens later in the story to Stephen? Stephen is the first martyr of the church, and he gives probably the second most effective sermon that has ever been preached in the New Testament. The first being the one that happened that Peter gave, where 3,000 people turn. And ironically, it's Peter now saying, you're probably not preaching material, Stephen, but, but we do have this important thing. And it's like God is saying, he's not preaching material? Watch this. I mean, he preaches a whole history of the Jewish people right in the face of getting stoned. And not stoned like Denver, Colorado. I mean like people throwing big rocks at you until you die. He could have recanted. He said, you know what? You're going to kill me in a very painful, humiliating way. How about if I take this opportunity to give you the sermon that'll knock your socks off. And in the heavens part, he sees Christ coming from, I mean, it is amazing, inspiring stuff. And so in a sense, Peter's right about the need to have word and prayer and unity and wisdom. And in a sense, he's actually contributing to the problem of not being united and not being wise enough to, to say, maybe, maybe, Maybe I can help. Maybe I can sit on the distribution committee because maybe there's nothing beneath any one of us because maybe widows matter more to God than kings because just maybe Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done it directly to me. My wife, Erica, and I pray and talk about a theme, like a scripture verse or a thing for each year that'll guide our family and our actions. And um, some years I come up with it, some years she does. She came up with it. She said, what about the least of these? What about this idea of doing to the least of these? What if that's kind of the Lotzer family mantra this year? And, and I, I resonated with it when she said it, and we're going to do it. But there was a part of me that was like, that, that's a costly, that's a costly one. That'll be harder than some previous years. Because if you actually say it, you should do it. And that's going to mean sacrifice. And we, we say all the time, if you give sacrificially and it doesn't actually cost you anything, it could be generous, but it's not sacrifice. If you give money, but it never affects what you drive and what you wear and the house you live in and the restaurants you frequent and how often you go and the trips you take, it, it, it never pinches you even a little bit. You're, you're, you might be generous. You just don't call it sacrificial giving. And if you say you're sacrificially loving the least of these, but you don't ever make time for people who stress you out, tax you, you never 
make time for people who are just really difficult to love. You might be generous and relational and loving to an extent, but it's not sacrificially including the least of these. As we conclude this sermon series, Don't Move the Lampstand, I pray that this will seep into our conversation at the church as we make our plans. I pray that it will seep into your family conversations and your personal life goals. I could do this, but is that moving the lampstand? If I'm going to spend all this time and effort and energy and do it, will this actually shine the light on Jesus? Or will it shine the light on something that could be good, could be bad, but whatever it is, it's not? Jesus. This will become a tool. Just uh, by way of preview next week, uh, Ari is preaching, and he's preached twice here. He's great, and it's so cool to get to know the person who leads you in worship most weeks, and he's going to do a standalone message that incorporates some of his testimony. I encourage you to come and invite others. Ari has a powerful story. You can pray for me. I'm going to a water park with small children. That's hopefully I'm not sore, and I stretch before that. And the week after that, we start a new series on 2nd and 3rd John. If you'd like to read through those short books in preparation, I welcome you to do that. And it's all about boundaries. How do you love people, but when do you draw a line? And what about toxic relationships? And, and when is it okay to just say, I'm not emotionally healthy enough to be in a friendship with you? <laughs> what does the word have to say about having healthy boundaries? Not just with really, really toxic behavior in individuals, but just even in relationship with healthy folks. How do we do that? How do we have appropriate boundaries? At this point in time, I'm going to uh, invite uh, Mark up uh, from our board to help me serve communion. On the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this, eat this for the forgiveness of sin, for the remembrance of what I've done for you. After that meal, he took the wine, we serve juice, and he said, this cup is a new covenant. That means promise. It's a promise between you and, and God, a promise of forgiveness. Every time you drink this, you're reminded that my blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Communion is so healthy spiritually because it reminds us that no matter what we've done or left undone, it's all forgiven and God loves us and he's not mad at us. Yet we're told to do it with a sense of reverence and, and let the Holy Spirit scan our heart for ways we could grow. Sins of omission, things we've left undone that we should have done, sins of commission. And so prepare your hearts and when you're ready, just come up. We'll take it through intention. You just take this little piece of bread and you just dip it carefully in the uh, juice and we do have gluten-free, and that's labeled uh, both gluten-free juice, which I didn't know they had gluten-free juice, and gluten-free bread.